You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Welcome back to the Heartland Politics Show and Podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of northwestern Illinois and eastern Iowa. This is your host, Robin Johnson, and we just experienced a midterm election that confounded nearly all the experts and pundits in media and politics. Many, if not most, including yours truly, to be up front, forecast at least significant Republican gains to match historical trends. Others saw the the red wave coming on a scale of huge Republican wins like in 1994 and 2010 with those with a sense of history here. Didn't happen. There were a few lonely voices in the wilderness who were saying prior to the election and even back as, as, as late as last summer that the results were gonna be more competitive. Uh, my guest today is one of those folks, one of those lonely voices in the wilderness, who was really, uh, uh, y- you're going to be very interested to hear from him and how uh, what he was looking at was so different. And I think it's very important for our politics moving forward. So uh, uh, his name is Simon Rosenberg. Um, he's the founder of the New Democratic Network and the New Policy Institute based in Washington, D.C., and I've been following him on Twitter for a number of years. And I saw this. I remember seeing this and thinking, hmm, I wonder what's going on. But I still held to uh, my own private predictions. This was going to be a pretty big Republican wipeout. Simon, thank you so much for taking the time to be on. It's a pleasure to be here. And I, I do want to say that I, for the Dukakis campaign in Iowa in 1988, I, the eastern third of Iowa was my region. So I got to spend time in part of your uh, coverage area for your show. And uh, it was a, a lot of fun. I had a great time and met really, truly wonderful people. Very memorable experience for me. Well, the Dukakis campaign, funny you bring that up. I, I'm going to come back to that because there's okay. an element of that, that uh, those of us, again, with a little gray hair kind of remember yeah. things. Yeah. Things can happen. But I mean, the big picture, we've now had a month here and uh, you've yeah. had time crunch a lot of numbers. We've had all the mail votes come in. Uh, I don't think everything's still 100% done, but what's yeah. the overall narrative here on what happened and why, and why this was different than what everybody thought? Yeah, I think there are two big takeaways. One is this was a stay the course election. I think this, you know, this wasn't a throw the bums out election. My own view, and this is a little bit of now sort of conjecture as opposed to hard data, is that I think the country was worn out by COVID. Um, and things felt good enough. They didn't want to rock the boat, right? This had been a really choppy period in our history. People had really struggled through COVID. They had struggled through um, MAGA and sort of the, the uncertainty of, of, of conservative and Republican politics in recent years, and Trump in particular. And so I think that when voters went to vote, many said, hey, look, things are, Joe Biden's been a decent president. Not everything is awesome, but it's not bad. Republicans are a little too crazy. Um, you know, still uh, after a few years, and we just can't take a big risk. I mean, things are starting to feel better for our families, right? We're coaching Little League again and getting back to having family dinner on Sunday night and don't really want to rock the boat. And so I think that was the first thing, that this was a little bit of a, hey, man, this has been hard. Let's just not do anything crazy here kind of election. And then second is that there really were two elections in this election. There wasn't one. There was one election that was inside the democratic battlegrounds where our campaigns, our heavily funded campaigns 
were able to, that was a, a bluer election. We actually gained ground from 2020 in many of the most important states in the country. And then there was the other election outside the battleground where we didn't have our big campaigns and didn't spend tons of money. And Republicans did better in those places. And my takeaway from from those from that is that one is that we showed that we're in control of our own destiny in the battlegrounds. And this is a big issue for 2024. You know, in many of the most important 2024 states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, Georgia, Democrats saw it, Colorado, New Hampshire, Democrats saw big gains from 2020, not just even holds, kind of an unimaginable thing, to your point, about historical uh, performances and historic performances in midterms. Um, but the second takeaway is that Democrats have to be worried about the power of the right wing noise machine and that where we're not putting these big campaigns on the ground, the Republicans have an innate advantage because of the loudness of their politics. And we have to be um, more um purposeful and intentional about trying to challenge the Republican dominance of the day-to-day national media landscape. And I think both of those things can be true. I mean, I, I end, end this election feeling like the Democratic Party is very strong. We've had three consecutive really good elections, defied expectations. You know, we have a generational turn that's begun that looks successful and well-executed and is the beginning of something really exciting. We have superior campaigns. And so, when I look at our party right now, I see a lot of strength. When I look at them, I see a lot of trouble ahead. They, you know, MAGA is still an enormous millstone around their neck. I think in many con- parts of the country, abortion is going to be a re- continue to be a very serious problem for the Republican Party. And so I think that they've got, you know, I feel good about our trajectory, and I think that they're still not out of the woods uh, in, on their side. Let me play devil's advocate uh, just on the point you made. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, it seemed like Repub- more mainstream Republicans did very well. Yeah. It was just the ones that were, say, the election deniers, Carrie Lake, uh, people like that, that really hurt. Plus, the Democrats may have, have they just been able to paper over the differences between the moderates and the progressives? And that is still an underlying rub there that could threaten them down the road? Yeah, great, two great questions. I, I, I think it's more than just they're crazy candidates. I think that's kind of a fudge uh, coming from the Republicans. I think, you know, they didn't raise a lot of money into their campaigns. The structural problems of the Republican Party is much deeper than bad a, a few bad candidates. Donald Trump still is the likely Republican nominee in 2024. Ron DeSantis is just as MAGA as Trump is. And so I don't think they're going to be able to shake the MAGA thing uh, easily. I don't think it's going to be easy to rebrand them as all of a sudden sort of a moderate center-right political party all over again. I, I think the extremism is in, you know, is in their po- politics. It's not, it's not just in a handful of folks. It is the party now. And you're going to see that with Kevin McCarthy and the new House Republicans who are so radicalized and extreme, they can't even get behind McCarthy. I mean, he doesn't have enough votes to win. It's not clear he's actually going to be speaker. And so there's still a lot of trouble ahead. They've got to work through MAGA is still the dominant force in their politics. And the Supreme Court is just as radical as it was in the summer of 2024, too, and may drop additional rulings that further distance the Republican Party from you know, the majority of voters, as they did with the abortion decision. So I think there's still a lot of trouble. On our side, look, the establishment is uh, continues to prevail on our side. Like Unlike what happened on the right, where their establishment collapsed on the Republican side and the party was overtaken 
by extremists. That has not happened on our side. And Hakeem Jeffries, for example, the new leader of the House Democrats, is very much kind of a mainstream Democrat. Um, and even though, you know, we have healthy spirited debate in our family uh, about these matters, I think that, um, you know, the establishment continues to prevail. And I think that many of the candidates that survived in the House, who survived in 2020 and 2022, people like Abby Spanberger and Alyssa Slotkin, and, you know, you can make your long list of folks, they're going to be empowered inside the Democratic caucus. I mean, they're, they're going to be louder voices. They're going to be challenging. You know, there's no question in my mind, and this is, I'm going to say something that's a little bit controversial, is that the, the progressive wing's attacks on the establishment Democrats in the last two years may have cost us the House. And I think that, you know, we ended up spending tens of millions of dollars defending incumbent Democrats in races that were never going to be competitive, that was just wasted money. That's all money that we didn't spend on the general election, which we only lost by a couple thousand votes in five states. And so I, I do hope that we can try to negotiate some kind of internal peace inside the family for the next two years so we can focus on winning the House back, which I think we can do in 2024. All right. My listeners out there, you know, they're not political insiders or maybe aware of all the inside jargon, but they're probably waiting to hear. All right. Does this guy have a secret sauce? Do you have a little safe where you have <laughs> all the different formulas you looked at? that was all, all different. The cauldron, the cauldron in the back where I was putting in yeah. the hearts of Newt and all the, you know, everything yeah. else. Right. Yeah. yeah. What made you, Tom Bonier, I've got to, I've got to say too, on, on Twitter, yeah. Tom Bonier was another. Well, yeah. I, I, and again, last summer I saw this. I'm like, what's he talking yeah. about? But right. this, what you were saying, I looked at, and I, I saw the meaning and the madness. I just didn't believe it. I thought there would be other things overriding it. But what were you looking at that was so different? Yeah. From so the quick story is that a year ago, in October, late October of 2021, I had noticed that Joe Biden's approval rating had come down. I mean, his approval rating started coming down in the summer and then it accelerated with Afghanistan and with, you know, sort of a clumsy back to school during COVID where I think, I think some of the questions of his competency became, I mean, Joe Biden was old, but he was seen as competent and experienced. And I think for a while people started worrying that he was just old and that he maybe perhaps wasn't as competent and as experienced as they believed and so his approval rating came way down. I mean, it was a pretty precipitous drop that happened. Um, and um, and what was interesting at the same time, what's called the congressional generic, which is the question we ask of, are you going to vote Democrat or Republican for the Congress? It's a very simple question. That didn't move. And usually those things track together. And so I wrote a column in November 1st of 2021 speculating that this was happening because the Republicans had made a big error in the election. They had run towards MAGA, a politics that had just been rejected twice by the American people in overwhelming numbers. And usually when a party loses an election, they run away from a failed politics. The Republicans ran towards it. And I thought this was a mistake and that it was sort of an explanation for why you could be disappointed in Joe Biden, but still not running towards the Republicans because people had just voted against them twice and were still worried about the radicalization of the Republican Party. And so what I speculated was that, listen, if this is the case, what we're likely to see is that MAGA is going to keep the Republican brand down. It's like a low ceiling in their election opportunities. We won't have a typical midterm election. The Democrats were going to have a lot to run on that will have gotten a lot done and will be able to argue that things are better. 
And that also, because of uh, the huge amount of money we were raising in campaigns and some innovations, technical, tactical innovations, we were probably going to be able to lessen the normal midterm drop-off just because of the amount of money we were going to spend to turn out our voters and the superior campaign apparatus. And basically, those three things is what happened in the election. I mean, I wrote this piece a year ago, and, and I was sort of open to this idea that this is what was going to happen. And then in May, um, and then in, in May 2nd, the Dobbs opinion got leaked. Uvalde happened, right? The January 6th committee hearings began. And we started entering a different phase in our national discourse where the ugliness of MAGA was sort of being thrown in our face in a very profound way. There was no way to avoid it. What I had written in my piece was, the question was how Democrats were going to do that, not whether. And what happened was it happened organically. And so all of a sudden now, it was a reminder to all these voters about all the reasons they didn't want to vote for MAGA. And so I did. I was involved in a polling project that polled in, with Hispanic voters in Arizona, Nevada, and Pennsylvania in mid-May. And we found Democratic overperformance and Republican struggle. Republican numbers were down, ours were up. I wrote a memo, I wrote the memo summarizing the poll saying, these are kind of unusual findings. It'll be interesting to see if we're seeing this in other parts of the country. And then I started looking at 538 and we were seeing this in other parts of the country. And many of the key Senate races, we were ahead in places like North Carolina and Georgia and, and Ohio, places we didn't think we were gonna be ahead, right? And so I wrote a piece in mid-June saying, there's no red wave. This is an atypical midterm, sort of my theory of the case from a few months ago seems to be playing out. And then Dobbs happened. And then, and then the election that just happened sort of basically cemented, and um, which was a Democratic overperformance, Republican struggle. We saw that then play out in five House specials where Democrats overperformed our 2020 numbers by seven points, including in states like Alaska and Nebraska, right, in upstate New York, not Democratic bastions. Um, we saw it in the Kansas numbers that happened in that referendum where Democrats really overperformed polling and expectations. We saw it then in the candidate fundraising where our candidates were just dramatically outraising Republican candidates in unusual numbers, right? Two, three, four to one, bigger than any time in modern history. Uh, and then we saw it in the voter registration change. And this is when Tom Bonnier and I started collaborating is that he started writing and documenting the huge shift towards Democrats and voter registration, particularly with women and young women um, and then that's when I started quoting Tom and citing his work and we started collaborating. And so what we said was at the time was, look, all these indications of Democratic intensity, right? Um, we saw it in the House specials in Kansas and voter reg numbers and in the candidate fundraising are all indicating strong Democratic performance. Will it show up in the actual election? And then the early vote came and the early vote, it showed up in the early vote and it showed up everywhere in the early vote. I used Tom's site, this amazing site, Target Early, which you can go to today, which he provides as a public service, a free public service for all of us nerds to go play around with data. Um, and then I was doing the daily, twice a day uh, um, analysis of the data, and we were seeing the early vote numbers were saying the same thing. Democrats were overperforming 2020. Republicans were struggling with turnout. And so we went into election day saying, hmm, you know, I mean, if these trends have, we, there's been sort of one election in the last five months. Why would election day be fundamentally different from everything that we've seen? And also the other thing, the big story, and if I can just put an exclamation, you know, sort of finish this is that 
I know it's been I mean, talking for a while, but the, um, you know, what happened with the polling and the red wave was that, um, that there was a couple handful, there were a handful of national polls showing numbers getting better for Republicans. The overwhelming majority of national polls didn't show that, but a couple did. And so, you know, the noisy Republicans started screaming red wave, red wave. And then there was this effort by some group of Republicans to game the polling averages, Real Clear Politics and 538, by flooding uh, battleground states with a bunch of very, very Republican polls, you know, that were three, four, five points more Republican than the average. And it drove the, the polling averages down. And so if you were just an analyst sort of quickly looking at things, you were seeing a couple really good polls for Republicans in the national numbers. You saw the averages moving. You heard scream, scream, red wave, red wave coming from every Republican jumping up and down with their arms waving in the air, right? And and basically people kind of said, oh, there's a red wave. And we said, no, there isn't. I mean, if you look at the independent polls, not at the Republican polls, they show a very comp close competitive election, as you said earlier. Um, and on election night, uh, on the night before election, Monday night, I, I wrote my final piece. And I said, if you look at the independent polling right now in the Senate, it looks like we're going to win in Georgia, Arizona, and Pennsylvania. It looks like Nevada is too close to call. And it looks like Ohio, Wisconsin, and North Carolina are going to go the other way. And that's exactly what happened, right? And it wasn't because I was some genius. I just wasn't allowing myself to be bamboozled by a bunch of very political polling that seeming, unfortunately, bamboozled a lot of very prominent political commentators, many of whom we see on television, who got this really wrong. And so our analysis that this was a close competitive election, that Democrats were kind of overperformed. Um, you know, when I went back and, you know, I don't do I don't do predictions because I don't really believe anybody can predict the future. I, I think you can make reasonable guesses about things that are going to happen. I had it at 51 in the Senate and 215 in the House, and it ended up being 51. I think we'll win in Georgia tonight. And it, and it ended up being 213 in the House. And that was just based on, you know, data that I that Tom and I had and that we weren't allowing ourselves to be bullied, in essence, by a very noisy Republican Party into uh, believing something that was there that wasn't there. And, and I do think there's going to have to be some kind of big national conversation among the people that do this for a living about what happened here. Because basically, in the last few weeks of the election, uh, tens of millions of Americans were misled uh, on television and in prominent media about what was happening in the election. There was never a red wave. It never happened. And what do I think that meant for us? It probably cost us the House. I mean, I think at the end of the day, uh, some of the decision making that our the DCCC made about how to allocate resources. I mean, we were spending lots of money at the very end in races that we lost, we won by eight to 10 points. I think if we had a clear eyed understanding of the election, we probably would have moved those resources to more competitive races. And so I do think it ended up causing us to make a series of decisions that were based on an election that wasn't happening, that um, uh, that may have cost us the House. And I also think, as you know, there are lots of friends of yours who probably went into election day despondent that the red wave was coming. It may have meant that they volunteered less or they gave less money because they were so upset and worried about what was going to happen. So I do think it also depressed some of our activism in this elections. It may have made some people do more. It may have, I think it made a lot of people do less. And that may have also cost us. So there was there was consequence to this getting it wrong. And it's also, if you live in a democracy, it's important that 
the journalism gets things right. That's their job, right? Is to illuminate, not to mislead. And and I and I do worry that our democracy, for our the health of our democracy, that the media kind of got bamboozled a little bit. And and that what that means, you know, for us on all the other issues we have to debate over the coming years is that, you know, get bamboozled once, it means it can happen again. And that's not healthy for our democracy. You're listening to Heartland Politics on WVIK Public Radio in the Quad Cities. I'm your host, Robin Johnson, and my guest today is Simon Rosenberg, who was one of the few who predicted uh, a very competitive election this cycle. He's just been talking a little bit about what he was looking at, uh, his methodology that made his prediction and a few other people uh, so different from what the, the common media and political narrative was. Um and I, I find it fascinating. Uh, we're getting deep into the weeds here, but I think our, our listeners will appreciate this. Um, I, I'm from I'm from a school, and I, I reveal my age. I'm older here, but uh, I just kept thinking. <clears throat> excuse me. I remember you referenced Dukakis earlier. I remember the crime issue being used as a cudgel against him in yeah. the '88 race. I remember crime being a huge issue, which really motivated people, and the Republicans. We're really using that issue based on what I saw. Now I'm out here in a rural area, but okay. um, in, in the heart of three competitive elections, two across the border in Iowa and for house races and one in Illinois, yep. I thought the crime issue was going to help the Republicans. Yep. I thought inflation, it's the economy, stupid Carville's famous line. Yep. Uh, what happened to that? It just seems like that. And I didn't, one side issue is I didn't see Democrats running on all the, the the the, the um, uh, legislative initiatives they passed to address the economy. It seemed like out here anyway they they weren't weren't really talking about that. But are all the a lot of the old rules kind of um, gone now? As far no, as no, uh, you're raising. I mean, I I don't you know you've asked really important question, and I'm going to give you my opinion on this. Right? Is that I think the problem for the Republicans on both the crime issue and the inflation issue is that they were exaggerating the reality of both and lying is not a good strategy ever right because people i i believe in the uncommon wisdom of the common people i mean people kind of understand what's going on around them and if you look at polling on inflation for example i mean i think people understood that the economy was better right i mean the unemployment rate is at, you know we in the last few months we've seen the lowest unemployment rate in peacetime america since world war ii the lowest poverty rate the lowest uninsured rate We've had more jobs created in the last two years than, you know, blah, blah, blah. The, so the economy was better. And, and it was better in reality, right? It, things are better today in reality. And the, and people know that there are worker shortages and people, they know, they don't know people, many people are unemployed, right? They understand innately that things are okay, right? Maybe not the best they've ever been. And inflation, you know, if you polled people and asked them what was the cause of inflation, only about a third of voters picked Joe Biden. And they're all Republicans who were never going to vote for Democrats anyway. People had a nuanced understanding. They understood that Russia and Saudi Arabia raised oil prices, and they understood about supply chain problems and COVID. And so this was never as clean a hit on the Democrats as the Republicans believed. And, and I think the media also got bamboozled by that. On crime, it's the same thing. Crime is not up in America, right? Crime is not is not surging in the United States. There isn't a crime wave, actually, in, in, in reality. Again, not on Fox News reality, where they're showing burning cities 
all the time and and have tried to convince people that entire American cities burned down in 2020, which didn't happen. The murder rate has gone up in some places, but the crime rate is actually not up, right? The overall crime rate. People are not less safe. And so there was always a limit to how much the Republicans could actually push that issue. Um, and it was always my belief that unless they that these issues around crime and you know the racial issues, immigration, crime, the issues around you know those people, right, which is central, those issues usually get Republicans engaged, but it's not enough for them to win. If you remember in 2018, Trump finished the election with the caravan, and we ended up winning that election by eight and a half points, right? So those issues are never sufficient. They need to win the election. They needed to really win the economic argument cleanly. And to really, and it was going to be hard because the truth is things are actually much better today. And I was looking at the exit polls, and 52% of voters believe that the economy was either better or that their own personal circumstances were either the, they were either in better shape or they were the same as they were two years ago. A majority of Americans, and and by Democrats won those voters by three to one, right? For people who thought things were okay, right, as opposed to the story that had been told to them on Fox News that Democrats were burning cities down and that inflation was impoverishing people. I mean, in rural areas, gas rising gas prices really mattered, right? It really was a major economic event for people who drove a lot, who had, you know, were dependent upon trucks and cars that didn't have didn't have high gas, you know, uh, were not efficient, fuel efficient. In the rest of the country, inflation was not as big a deal. Wages were way up, right? I mean, the gap between inflation and wages was only a point or two. And a majority of Americans objectively were actually better off even with inflation, given both the increase in their wealth and, and the increase in their wages. So the economic argument was never as clean, the hit on us was never as clean as the Republicans thought it was going to be. On the question about what we were talking about, I do think that we didn't have a sufficient national narrative about our accomplishments. I think this was a something we needed to do. We didn't do. I think we did well enough and well enough to have a good election. I think we could have done better. And I think we could have made gains in the House if we had done a better job at helping the American people understand about the things we had done to make their lives better. Uh, I do think, though, that the I think you raised earlier, the concern about the radicalization of the Republican Party and their extremism um, was very present in people's minds, right? And and as you pointed out, there were many candidates who did a very good job reminding voters every day about how crazy they were. Um, and so I do think that part of the argument was effectively conveyed, particularly at, at in the local races where Republican uh, extremists gave Democratic candidates a lot to work with. I will say this one thing going forward, right? I mean, if if the basic dynamic of this election was that you know we did a good enough job and they're kind of a little crazy, you know that is also possibly going to be the dynamic in the next election too. I mean by 2024, you know all these three the three big bills that Biden passed that made massive historic uh, investments in our economy, the chips bill, the infrastructure bill, and the climate bill, those will start being felt by voters in the next year to two years. Uh, and Joe Biden's going to be able to be run, assuming he runs for election. Um, He'll be able to say that, you know, I, I put America on course to win these big economic fights of the future for the next generation. We've made historic investments um, and they're still a little too crazy. And, and I think this basic 
dynamic is still going to play out through in, in heading into 2024. And it's why I think we're favored to win the presidency. And we're also favored to flip the House in 2024. The Senate will be very competitive. I mean, and, you know, there's a chance that we could win the House, win the presidency and lose the Senate. It's kind of amazing how crazy our politics are right now, just given the map. But it's going to be a very competitive Senate map uh, in 2024. I got just about a minute and a half, and this is a tough question yeah. to answer that quickly. I get asked all the time by people uh, in these polarized times, are there still independents out there and do they make a difference? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, independents, amazingly, according to the exit polls, went 49, 47 for the Democrats. The way to think about independence is that independents really are about 10% of the electorate. I mean, and when you push people... You know, uh, you know, you can ask these questions in different ways, but what really characterizes independence is they tend to not be in the center. They tend to be disaffected. They just don't like politics and they don't like either party. They think it's all stupid. Everyone's corrupt. Right? I mean, there's sort of this general disdain, which is why they've stayed independent of politics. Right. They've literally I mean, to use that term. Um, and so, you know, what what our game is, is we got to maximize our vote of our people and we got to win over it you know, the folks that are unaligned or independent. And in this election, we did a good job at both. Um, and um, and it's what you need to do to win. Final question, and this is a short answer for our listeners. Yeah. Uh, I'm taping this with Simon on Tuesday. Voters in Georgia are settling the Senate yeah. race there. I think you alluded to this earlier, but who do you think is going to win? I think, look, the polling is very good for Warnock. Uh, he's raised a lot more money and spent a lot more money than Walker. Um, the early vote is very strong for us. I mean, all these indications suggest that uh, Warnock is likely to win. Okay. You heard it here first, folks. Um, my guest today has been Simon Rosenberg, and I appreciate him uh, battling uh, a, a virus, uh, uh, taking yeah. the time to come on and share with our listeners uh, some very important information, I think, on, on this midterm election and also what it means moving forward. Uh, Simon, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity and stay healthy, everybody. It's a little crazy out there. Flu season has been a tough one. You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.